Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. Amna Nawaz is on assignment. On the news hour tonight, the U.S. pushes for a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. We hear from a spokesperson for the Qatari Foreign Ministry at the center of the negotiations. And the Israel-Hamas war becomes a local issue. Protesters demand their city councils pass resolutions that could pressure the Biden administration to act. They can't go meet with Joe Biden. They can't get two minutes in front of the Congress. They can come to their local city council, and that's why they're doing it. And the fight over immigration intensifies as House Republicans continue the process of impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Welcome to the news hour. The U.S. has moved closer tonight to retaliating for a drone attack that killed three American troops in Jordan. President Biden said today he has decided how to respond. As he left the White House this morning, he said Iran shares the blame because U.S. officials believe an Iran-backed militia launched the attack. But he stopped short of saying that Tehran is now a target. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Later, the Iraqi militia blamed for the attack announced it's suspending strikes against U.S. forces in the region. The Pentagon responded, saying, quote, actions speak louder than words. Meantime, in the occupied West Bank, surveillance video showed Israeli commandos inside a hospital in the city of Jenin disguised as civilian women and medics. Three Palestinian militants were killed. And in southern Gaza, fighting raged again around Khan Yunus, while Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ruled out any military withdrawal. I hear sayings about all sorts of deals, so I want to make it clear. We will not end this war without achieving all of our goals. We will not pull out the IDF from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists. For his part, the leader of Hamas said he will meet with mediators in Cairo to review the latest ceasefire proposal. We're joined now by our own Nick Schifrin. So, Nick, let's start with the attack that killed those three U.S. Soldier, soldiers in Jordan. What more do we know about how the administration is planning to respond? Administration officials say that the challenge is to reestablish deterrence against these Iranian-backed groups without going to war with Iran itself. So what could that look like? And what I'm about to describe are kind of the broad categories uh, of targets. Uh, a group of categories, number one, a group of targets, number one, is um, Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. Uh, so these are Iraqis and Syrians who fight for these groups whose weapons, intelligence, and financing often comes from Iran. The second category is Iranian assets in Iraq and Syria. Now, what's the difference? There are Iranians from Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, that uh, run centers in these places, that run weapons sites in these places. And these are obviously Iranians running these places. Some of them are in Damascus and Baghdad, in the capitals where these uh, commanders fly into, but there are also more rural targets, I'm, I'm told as well. And then the third category would be Iran itself. Uh, we're talking about everything from the IRGC headquarters uh, in downtown Tehran to Iranian naval ships, uh, including a ship that a former military official tells me is helping the Houthis in Yemen. So again, those are the broad categories. We don't, of course, know what the, the final target's going to be. Uh, but 
uh, today, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that the response would be tiered, multiple actions over a period of time, and that suggests more than one round. They are also looking at that statement that you mentioned, Jeff, by Khatib Hezbollah, the most likely uh, a group that targeted uh, the, the troops in Jordan this weekend, uh, saying that, uh, look, we're not going to fire on U.S. troops. This is a sign, uh, some uh, regional officials believe, that Iran doesn't want to escalate. Uh, but a senior administration official tells me they're monitoring that statement, but they don't take it as face value. And as you said, the Pentagon say actions speak louder than words. Mm. Well, as we mentioned, Hamas announced it will go to Cairo to engage in those hostage talks. What does that signal, that they're taking the serious Seriously? The mediators certainly hope and believe that this means Hamas is taking it seriously. Uh, and these details that we have on the hostage talks now have been provided to me by an official briefed on the talks. This is how they would unveil. Uh, the hostage releases would occur over three phases. Older women and children would be the first phase. Men and younger women would be the second phase. And soldiers and dead bodies would be the third phase. The first phase would last six weeks. What does that mean? The war would actually stop for six weeks with assurances that the pause in the fighting would carry on to phases two and three. Now, despite what you just read, Jeff, about what Netanyahu said, Israel has agreed to this framework uh, on paper. And that's why the ball is in Hamas's court right now. That meeting is absolutely key uh, and will decide whether this deal goes forward. And it's all being mediated by Qatar, as, as we've talked about. Uh, and just a short time ago, uh, I spoke with Dr. Majid Al-Ansari, the spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Qatar. And I began by asking him how significant it was that these principles were now in place. I can tell you that uh, we are at a good moment now. It's been, uh, we're at a point where uh, a lot of things that have eluded us for a couple of months now, we are at, we are seeing, uh, you know, a, a draft uh, being circulated. As you saw uh, today, you know, Hamas announcing that they have received the, uh, the draft and are discussing it. And that is a point that we were uh, very far from a couple of uh, weeks back. Now we have a general understanding of what the next phase of uh, the pause will be and how that will play out. And I would say that this is very significant because as long as the process is ongoing like this, as long as we're having ideas going back and forth, we can be sure that at least there is a light at the end of the tunnel where we can get to a, a sustainable pause at the end. As you said, uh, Ismail Haniya today said he was going to review the draft and he's flying to Cairo, presumably to discuss with Hamas's military commanders about the draft. But uh, Haniya and Hamas in general have reiterated the same point, that they want a permanent ceasefire as part of this deal. And that until that is in the deal, they will reject it. This deal does not have the words permanent ceasefire. So how do you get over or how do you convince them uh, to go over that, uh, that concern that they've had? You know, Nick, we've been mediating between the two sides since 2006 when the United States asked us to open this channel of communication. And we, we've grown to understand the patterns of uh, the negotiations that, uh, that go through. Obviously, on both sides, you will hear a lot of statements. You'll hear grand positions over a lot of uh, issues. The important thing is, is that the mediation in its entirety has always been uh, key to the process itself. So we are uh, listening to uh, what we are getting from uh, both sides. We believe that the language we have right now builds upon the proposals that came from both sides during the past couple of uh, months. But is Hamas still insisting that the draft have permanent ceasefire? Usually what happens is that you get a yes but. Mm. 
from uh, from both sides. So it depends on the size of that uh, ask that is going to uh, to come back. But I'm quite sure that we are on the right track. We heard from the other side, so to speak, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, reiterating Israel's goals of, quote, eliminating Hamas and releasing the hostages. And as we heard earlier, he said the Israeli military will not withdraw from the Gaza Strip. That's what he said today. Does that prevent this deal from happening? I think it's very important not to take everything said in, uh, in front of cameras, you know, at face value. I know we're speaking in front of cameras here, <laughs> but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, propaganda, there's a lot of politicization of, uh, of this and trying to uh, adhere to one's uh, voter base rather than the reality of the situation. Let me zoom out uh, and look at some regional issues. President Biden said today he has decided how to respond to this attack that we saw over the weekend in Jordan uh, that killed three U.S. service members. Um, Yesterday, the prime minister speaking here in Washington, uh, he urged de-escalation. What is your message to the Biden administration today as they are about to launch this strike? I can tell you that uh, this attack came as, uh, you know, and we all understand how dangerous it is and how uh, problematic it is. And uh, we, as you know, we are members in the coalition against uh, ISIS and therefore the, our military pe personnel are in the same uh, operations as U.S. Because the, these U.S. soldiers who are in Jordan are actually counter ISIS mission. That's what exactly. they're doing. Right. And, uh, and therefore it, uh, we can't take this lightly obviously, but we have to understand also the bigger picture here. All of this is a byproduct of what is happening right now in, uh, in Gaza. This, this region, you know, the Middle East, we, it's a cliche to say that the Middle East, you know, is, is uh, the capital of all crises in the world. But right now we are at a situation where the people of the region can't take any more refugee crisis, can't take any more security uh, challenges, can't take any more wars. What's happening in the region right now is that you have a failure of the central state. And it's very important for us to make sure that we de-escalate. Any escalation right now in, uh, in the region could result in open war. We are, uh, we fully understand, of course, that the United States has to uh, reestablish the deterrence in, uh, in the region. But we also uh, are talking to our partners in, uh, in the administration, our partners around the world, and need to, uh, for any response to be measured and for us to be able to, uh, to talk about this and to get the messages across on all sides. Many U.S. officials don't believe that this is actually about Gaza. This is about Iran. Iran pushing these or supplying the information, the intelligence, the weaponry to these Iranian-backed proxies in Iraq and Syria and the Houthis in Yemen to be able to launch these attacks. Uh, Iran has been uh, helping these groups. The U.S. is about to hit these groups uh, and perhaps Iran itself. Um, what is the off-ramp in Qatar's view, for what we were about to see, increasing escalation? Well, the important uh, thing here is that for a measured response and not to uh, antagonize the, uh, all the sides in, uh, in the region for open war. While I uh, fully understand that there is a lot of emotion also uh, linked to this, we have to understand that when this uh, crisis started in, uh, in Gaza, this is when these escalations started. And unless we diffuse the original crisis here, unless we diffuse the war on, uh, on Gaza, a lot of escalations will utilize that in the region. A lot of proxies will utilize that in the region to, to conduct such attacks. Finally, sir, um, I will ask you about uh, comments uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu recently. Uh, this was leaked audio to a group of family members of hostages being held in Gaza. He said, quote, you don't hear me thanking Qatar. They have leverage because they finance Hamas. I've asked you a version of this question before, but there are critics of yours who say you are both arsonist and firefighter. You are coming in to try and mediate today, 
but you are the arsonist in the sense that you're supporting Hamas. What's your response to that? If you are going to accuse Qatar of supporting Hamas with the funding that was done to uh, aid, then the same accusation would go to Israel itself, because all the funding that went into aid into Gaza was done in complete coordination with, uh, with Israel. The, the money went through Israeli banks to make sure that we have enough calm in, uh, in Gaza that we can work on mediation. And this is what we've been doing since 2006. But I can tell you that, sadly, when we hear these words coming from Prime Minister Netanyahu, the only thing we can see there is a politicization of this crisis. He has made such uh, statements about uh, Qatar on the eve of a, and he doubled down on these statements on the eve of the meeting in Paris when he is sending his chief of intelligence to, uh, to meet with, uh, with Qatar in the mediation. And while he is engaged in that mediation, if he is sincere about what he is saying in, uh, in Qatar, can he answer the question of why he uh, worked with uh, Qatar on the funding of uh, the aid programs in, uh, in Gaza, why he's working now in the mediation, and why even on the 28th of September of last year, so just just a week before the 7th of October, his government was engaged in mediation that uh, Qatar was doing between uh, Hamas and, uh, and Israel. It is totally unacceptable, but sadly, we've grown accustomed to it. Dr. Marjan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. In the day's other headlines, former President Donald Trump will remain on the Illinois primary ballot. That state's election board declined today to remove him on the grounds that his conduct surrounding the January 6th insurrection disqualified him under the U.S. Constitution. The eight board members, Democrats and Republicans alike, said the courts must decide the constitutional question. This Republican believes that there was an insurrection on January 6th. There's no doubt in my mind that he manipulated, instigated, aided and abetted an insurrection on January 6th. However, having said that, is not my place to rule on that today. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments next week on whether Mr. Trump is ineligible for the ballot in the state of Colorado. Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush has confirmed that she's under investigation by the U.S. Justice Department. It involves allegations that the St. Louis Democrat misused campaign funds to pay for her personal security against far-right attacks. Bush denied wrongdoing today and said she's cooperating fully. A court in Pakistan convicted former Prime Minister Imran Khan today of leaking state secrets, and it sentenced him to 10 years in jail. Prosecutors said he broke the law when he waived a confidential document at a political rally. The verdict brought sharply different reactions both for and against Khan. Look at the decision. They must have made it within the scope of our Constitution. The punishment could also have been more extreme, but it's only 10 years, so the decision was made with some thought behind it. We all know who is honest and who are the looters who have looted this country. Imran Khan is our last hope. The whole system is trying to eliminate him. Today's action comes days ahead of elections in Pakistan, but Khan is not on the ballot because he's already serving prison time for corruption. The government of France announced new controls on foreign food products today in response to farmer protests. They've been demonstrating for more than two weeks, demanding higher incomes, lower costs, and less red tape. They've used their tractors and trucks to encircle Paris with barricades, and they vowed today to keep up the pressure. I am an organic farmer. We were driven into organic farming, and today it's not working anymore. I'm selling the organic beef meat at the price of the conventional one. I run my farm, but if I don't earn money, I cannot invest. It's an economy that doesn't function anymore. 
Farmers in Belgium and Spain are now saying that they are going to join the protest movement in solidarity. Back in this country, U.S. consumer confidence has reached a two-year high. The business research group Conference Board says its confidence index rose in January for a third straight month. Analysts tie the increase to slower inflation and continued economic growth. On Wall Street, stocks mostly drifted as Federal Reserve policymakers started their latest meeting on interest rates. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 134 points to close at 38,467. The Nasdaq fell 118 points. The S&P 500 slipped three. And this year's Gershwin Prize for Popular Song goes to singing great Elton John and his longtime lyricist Bernie Taupin. The Library of Congress announced the award today, citing hits that include Your Song, Tiny Dancer, Rocket Man, and many others. They'll be honored at a concert in Washington on March 20th. And the famed Broadway dancer, singer, and actress Cheetah Rivera died today in New York. Over seven decades, she garnered 10 Tony nominations, won twice, and blazed a trail for Latina artists. Rivera first won fame in 1957 as Anita in the original West Side Story. She recalled that experience for American Masters on PBS back in 2006. Being inside of the piece was constant motion. That's what the emotion of the gangs was all about. That's what the youth of the time was all about, just movement, keep on moving. That's why it was great to dance it and to sing it. But just to sing it would not have been enough. Cheetah Rivera was 91 years old. Still to come on the NewsHour, the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, on his snubbing a meeting with the Biden campaign and his city's calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. Major car manufacturers respond to recent challenges by slowing production of electric vehicles. And author Elizabeth Flock on telling three women's stories of using violence to fight abuse. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. The U.S. House of Representatives is on the cusp of impeaching a cabinet secretary for the first time in more than a century. Tonight, Republicans on the Homeland Security Committee are moving to advance articles of impeachment against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Lisa Desjardins was in the hearing room and joins us now with more. So, Lisa, House Republicans have signaled that this was coming. What are their specific charges against the DHS Secretary? Let's look at the articles of impeachment now that we have them. There are two. The first one is willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. That, that basically accuses the Secretary of allowing in hundreds of thousands of migrants, not detaining them. Uh, then secondly, breach of public trust. Now, part of that is the idea uh, from Republicans. They say that Mayorkas lied to them when he said that the border is under operational control. Now, Republicans did produce five reports in this, but there really have only been a couple of hearings. Still, Chairman of the Committee, Mark Green, says this is serious. We cannot allow this border crisis to continue. We cannot allow fentanyl to flood across our border, our criminals to waltz in undeterred. And we cannot allow a cabinet secretary with no regard for the separation of powers or the rule of law to remain in office. That is why today, we present this committee with the articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
But Mayorkas, Democrats, and frankly, some Republicans also say that this is political and unprecedented, impeaching a cabinet secretary for what they say is really a policy difference. Mayorkas sent this letter in the early hours this morning where he wrote to the committee uh, that the problems with our immigration system are not new. He said we need a legislative solution that only Congress can provide. You've claimed that we failed to enforce immigration laws, and that is false. Among other things, Mayorkas says he needs resources. He needs the ability, more detention capacity capacity, among other things. Uh, the question here, Jeff, is not really how do you fix the problem at the border, it's who do you blame? Uh, yeah. it, this impeachment is not going to change things at the border, but the blame and what the message is is at stake. So they're accusing him of refusing to uphold the law and breaching the public's trust. On what grounds? Provide the context for us. Right. Let's look at one of the contention points here. As I mentioned, Republicans accusing the secretary of perjury before Congress. So I want to play one of the sound bites that's at the center of that. This is an exchange that happened in 2022. Do we have operational control, yes or no? Yes, we do. And we have we operational are, control of the borders. Yes, we do. And, Congressman, and we are working to... So what operational control defined? In this section, the term operational control means the prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States, including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, instruments of terrorism, narcotics, and other contraband. Do you stand by in your testimony that we have operational control in light of this definition? And Congressman, I think the um, Secretary of Homeland Security would have said the same thing in 2020. That is a definition from a 2006 law, but as the secretary is saying, it, it says that no one could cross the border, and what Mayorkas and uh, the Biden White House have said is no one has ever met that standard in United States history. Um, they instead are saying that there's a different issue here being Donald Trump. We know, and I know from my reporting, political sources and some in the Trump universe say, yes, he does want to campaign on the border. He does not necessarily want a deal or a solution right now. So when you hear from Democrats today, as we've heard from Democratic leaders, they point back to Trump. This was never about securing the border. This was never about migrants. And this was never about protecting our country. Just like the baseless impeachments and everything else the MAGA Republicans have pretended to care about, it has always been about helping Donald Trump become president again. Republicans reject that, of course. They say there is a real issue at the border. They really think this is a dereliction of duty. But mm -hmm. at the same time, as they're impeaching this secretary, that same secretary is trying to negotiate with other Republicans for a potential border deal on the Senate side. So you can't miss the irony. And Lisa, what do we know about the level of illegal immigration under Secretary Mayorkas? Right, this is important. And it was hard to pick out just some facts. But let me present from Mayorkas's side where we are. There has been such a massive surge in numbers at the border. So let's look at 2019. During the Trump presidency, 1.1 million encounters that year is what DHS reported. Let's look at last year, last fiscal year, 3.2 million. So Mayorkas is saying we've had a tripling of the amount of people we're seeing at the border, but they say the apprehension rate in both times has been 78%. So they're saying we're catching up with the, with the past despite these record numbers. Republicans on their side say, though, you're not detaining as many, that catch and release is leaving more migrants because there is a bigger surge into this country. And then you look at detention numbers. I looked at those two. Currently, we've got about 38,600 um, in ICE detention. 2019, January of 2019, it was 46,500. So a higher number. The sides debate why that is. DHS says COVID's a factor, that some places still have not reopened detention beds. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to unpack here, but the numbers at the border are really the issue, and Republicans are blaming Mayorkas and Biden policy, and they're impeaching him for it. Lisa Desjardins, thanks as always for that great reporting. Welcome.
As Hamas weighs a new proposal for a temporary truce in Gaza, protesters in the U.S. calling for a ceasefire have disrupted everything from commutes in New York City to a parade in Los Angeles. And in cities across the country, groups have now taken their fight to city halls, where in some cases, the topic is overtaking other priorities. Stephanie Sai reports. With the Israeli counteroffensive to the October 7th Hamas terror attack, the plight of Palestinians in Gaza and in the occupied West Bank has taken on new urgency to activists like Shireen Nasser, a Cleveland resident with strong ties to Palestine. You know, you like the little ones. Yeah. We are struggling every day. Um, you know, I wake up every morning and think of my dad who is currently in the West Bank and call him and be like, hey, I just want to check on you, make sure you're still alive. Um, we're watching, you know, these horrific stories unfolding of our families back home. She's channeled her grief into protest, and lately those protests have found their way to an unlikely venue, Cleveland City Hall. If you see my humanity, that may be the genocide of people that look like me, the family members of 25,000 Palestinians in the greater Cleveland area will be worthy of this city's empathy. Since October, the Cleveland City Council's weekly public comment period, usually a form to vent about local issues, has been dominated by talk of a war on the other side of the world, says Council President Blaine Griffin. I would say approximately nine out of ten commenters almost every week for the last four to six weeks have been people that speak on that conflict. These citizens are almost all calling for the same thing. Cleveland City Council can, should, and must pass a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Join with other brave leaders in calls for a ceasefire. Call for a ceasefire. Over a dozen city councils in cities across the country have passed ceasefire resolutions, which range from condemnation of both sides of the war to calling for an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Daniel Hopkins, a political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, says it's all part of a growing trend. Um, we're seeing what, what political scientists term the nationalization of American politics. So increasingly, city council members, school board members, and other local officials whose training and whose experience is very much focused on their local communities being forced oftentimes to weigh in on hot-button national issues on which they don't have a lot of experience. The topic is ceasefire in Gaza. I can't speak for all of my colleagues, but most of us never signed up to be Henry Kissinger. Griffin says the protests are interfering with other city priorities. Just keep reading first reading emergency resolution. Just keep moving. I have a bank that is possibly going to be leaving uh, the community. There's community members that want to come down and petition the government for that. There's people that want to talk about um, very critical issues. And I think the unfortunate part is that people have been drowned out and don't feel welcome in City Hall. One of those who hasn't felt welcomed lately is Mark Ashett of the Jewish Federation of Cleveland. Watch as he speaks, two rows of activists walk out. 220 woke up not knowing that they would be kidnapped, snatched from their homes and held hostage in Gaza by terrorists. The feeling of hostility in that room was very uh, palpable. For 16 days, there's no the doors, villains. Please? There's no justification. One second. We're seeing the language turn to anti-Jewish language, not just language about the state of Israel or Israelis. Because of the tenor of the crowd, Ashid says he no longer encourages his community to attend Cleveland City Council meetings. But his organization wrote a letter to the council against the ceasefire resolution. We all want to see a ceasefire, 
But we want to see a ceasefire that leads to peace. And any ceasefire that does not release the hostages and does not remove Hamas from power will only bring us back to this point in the future. Ashid's opinion aligns with the Biden administration's policy. The murder of 23,000 Palestinians still hasn't illuminated. Okay, so you, you refuse, are you refuse so-called to leaders. To Powerless to change that, activists calling for Israel to stop its bombing campaign have interrupted city council meetings in cities across the country. You are now disrupting this meeting. So okay, this is you your... are disrupting the meeting. You're ordered removed from this meeting. In some cases, like at this meeting in Oakland, California, spreading misinformation and baseless conspiracies. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Dean Preston, a San Francisco city supervisor, says what he's seen at City Hall has been orderly. We had thousands of people coming to City Hall. I've been in office four years, never seen anything like it in terms of the number of people coming in. These were entirely peaceful gatherings. These folks are coming to their local legislative bodies. They can't go meet with Joe Biden. They can't get two minutes in front of the Congress. They can come to their local city council, and that's why they're doing it. Preston introduced a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of Israeli hostages that passed. But San Francisco's Democratic mayor, London Breed, returned the resolution without a signature and issued a harsh statement, saying it made the city angrier, more divided, and less safe. Supervisor Preston, also a Democrat and the son of a Holocaust survivor, says the war is directly impacting San Franciscans. Just this morning, I heard from a Palestinian-American friend here in San Francisco, who informed me, and I quote, seven more members of my family have been killed overnight. This is not just something happening thousands of miles away. And frankly, when elected officials don't speak to this trauma. Folks feel ignored and that their pain is not being recognized. But the resolutions have no legal authority. It's not the case that any of our allies look to San Francisco or Cleveland to learn what U.S. foreign policy is going to be. But I do think that they potentially can have an impact, say, within the Democratic Party, in that they can signal the extent of discontent and the sources of discontent around U.S. foreign policy set by the Biden administration. Whether or not President Biden or even the Cleveland City Council responds, Shireen Nazar has no plans to stop speaking out. Going through this grief, I felt such an urgency to be in my community and do this work alongside my community, calling for a ceasefire, because I think about the kind of world I want to leave for my kids. Yeah. And so we're going to keep showing up. Until city council says we are engaging back with you. wants to talk about the ceasefire. An impasse with no clear end in America's city halls and in the Middle East. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai. Those ceasefire calls stretch from city halls in Cleveland and Oakland to the mayor's office in Dearborn, Michigan. Laura Barone Lopez has more. 
Dearborn, Michigan is home to one of the largest Muslim and Arab American populations in the United States. Since the Israel-Hamas war began, the city's residents, many of whom have a personal connection to the region, have urged President Biden to endorse a ceasefire in Gaza. The NewsHour has learned the president is planning a trip to Michigan on Thursday to rally with United Auto Workers after they endorsed his re-election bid. The visit comes after Dearborn's mayor, Abdullah Hamoud, was one of several Arab-American leaders who turned down a meeting with President Biden's campaign last week, and he joins me now. Mayor Hamoud, thanks so much for joining the NewsHour. Biden's campaign manager visited uh, Michigan recently and met with leaders of various constituencies across the state. Why did you to choose to decline that invitation? We chose to decline because I don't think this is a moment that calls for ele electoral politics. You know, Palestinian lives should not be measured in polls. For us, this is a moment for our concerns to be heard, listened to, and for us to uh, draft a new course together in terms of uh, changing the direction of what's happening overseas. Those are conversations that need to be had with senior policy staff, with cabinet members, not with campaign staff. When you send campaign staff as the first delegation to this community to meet with us for the first time, that sends a message that this is purely a political problem that you see. Has the president's campaign reached out to you about this upcoming visit, and would you meet with him if they did? Uh, at this point in time, I have not heard from any uh, individual from uh, Biden's administration. Uh, from my perspective, I'm, I'm one who firmly believes that community engagement can be powerful when you come together to talk about policies that can save lives. And so if the president or members of his administration, not his campaign, want to meet to talk about charting a new course together to fundamentally change the direction that they're currently on to call for a ceasefire, to end the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, that is a conversation that we're willing to have. Mayor, there's no indication from the White House or from the president that he is going to change his position uh, on Gaza and on Israel. So barring a call for a ceasefire, do you think that you and the voters that you represent can support him come November? Uh, from our perspective, we don't like to categorize this issue strictly as it pertains to the upcoming elections because it dehumanizes us. It lets us know again that all that matters are polls and outcomes. For us, more than anything, we understand that the stance that we've taken, one where we're demanding a ceasefire, is not one that's only relevant and important to Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. Frankly, this is the majority feeling for most of Americans across this country. Over 60% support a ceasefire. Over 80% of Democrats support a ceasefire. So we think this is the right path forward for any and all individuals seeking the highest office in the world. Mayor, I understand that you say this is about more than elections, but I do want to ask you about Donald Trump, who appears headed to, uh, for the GOP nomination for president, and he's made his stance on the war abundantly clear. When I'm back at the Oval Office, we will cut off every penny of money that we send to the Palestinians and the terrorists on day one. So faced with the choice of President Biden or former President Donald Trump, based on policies like what you just heard, who do you believe would best represent your constituents? We have survived the Trump presidency four years ago, and I'm not blind to what is being said by Trump and other Republican candidates uh, at the podium. But as it pertains to the decisions that are being made overseas, it seems like there's no real difference between president, uh, former President Trump and current President Biden. For us, I, I have a value statement. I believe that no innocent man, woman, or child should be killed. And I'm looking for the president that does not believe that that statement has a qualifier. I think that's a universal value that we should all adopt. 
Mayor, respectfully, I know you said that you think there's no real difference, but the former President Trump has also floated religious tests for immigrants, has also said that he would reject Gazan refugees, something that the current president hasn't said. So do you, what do you make of, of those policies that Trump says he would enact if he wins? You know, I said there was no difference as it pertains to some of the decision-making that's happening right now in Gaza. Um, from my perspective, you know, Trump is not a candidate that I back. Um, the, the question that you're asking me is actually a question that needs to be put back into the laps of the president. He is the candidate that is seeking the highest office in the world. And so the question has to be put to him. What will he do? to earn the trust and the respect of the constituency that he's trying to represent in that White House. That is a question that falls on the laps of the candidate. As somebody's run for office, I don't look at the voters and say, you're at fault if I'm not elected to the office. As a candidate, I look in the mirror, I listen to the concerns of the majority of Americans in this nation at this point in time, 50% of which, by the way, also believe that what is unfolding is a genocide. And so that question is to be put to him as a candidate. How will you change course to listen and heed the concerns of your American voters today? Mayor, what do you think your party and President Biden is not understanding or needs to fully understand about Muslim and Arab Americans in Michigan right now? You know, we don't have to think about what it's like in Gaza uh, today. We don't have to think about what it's like in many of the Arab countries that have bombs being dropped on a near daily basis. We have lived through those moments. Many of my residents have had to dig up relatives from under the rubble after the residential towers have been bombed. They've had to bury loved ones. We have one resident who buried over 12 loved ones. We have another resident who hails from Sheikh Jarrah, which is a village currently being ethnically cleansed, whose father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were the groundkeepers of the uh, Masjid al-Quds. And so for us, we have lived through apartheid. We've lived through occupation. We have lived through being sieged and bombarded. And so for us, it's extremely personal. What we're asking from this president and anybody seeking higher office is to come to this community, listen to our stories, because we have the firsthand accounts of what it's like living under these conditions. And let's put the pen in both of our hands and let's construct and co-write this policy together about how we can usher, uh, usher a new foreign policy era for us as a nation. The days of endless wars in the Middle East have to close. We thought we closed that chapter, but, on, but that's, that, that's not what's unfolding today. Mayor Abdullah Hamoud of Dearborn, Michigan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Last year was a record year for electric vehicles in the U.S., more than 1.2 million sold. That was 50% higher than in 2022. And yet, there are signs that demand for EVs appears to be slowing and may not be quite as intense as either automakers or the Biden administration has expected. To help us understand where things are, we're joined now by Jessica Caldwell of Edmunds.com. So it feels, Jessica, like the general perception of electric vehicles, in some ways fueled by media reports, is that the, the demand is slowing, the market is slowing heading into this new year. Is, is that narrative true? It is true. The thing is, is that EVs are still growing in sales. You look at EV sales, they are on the upward trajectory. It's just maybe not as steep as we thought two years ago, because I think it was easy to get swept up in a new technology. It was very exciting. Sales were accelerating. Um, and it just doesn't work that way in the long run with the new technology. You know, the more vehicles you sell, the harder people become to convert. You start losing some of those early adopters that wanted to get in early and more of the mass market starts to buy the vehicle and those people 
are a bit pickier with their money and ask a lot more questions and have a lot more concerns. So it's not a surprise that it's slowing. I just think it's it's uh, it's it's good to remember that they are still growing, just maybe not as fast as we thought. Well, during an earnings call today, GM CEO Mary Barra said the pace of sales has slowed. And that follows recent announcements, as you well know, by GM and Ford, who've said they're going to cut back some of the production of new electric vehicles and delay some investments. Why? What accounts for that? Help us understand the market dynamics. Right. I mean, I think when you look at EVs, they are more expensive. We're in an era right now where prices are high for these vehicles. Interest rates are high. When we look at back at the past decade, interest rates have been low and that fueled more expensive vehicle purchases. And that's not the case now. We're looking at interest rates at 7%, not 4% or 5%. And that definitely adds cost to it. And I think we're having people that are just getting a bit skeptical about infrastructure, about some of the charging networks. And as you look around, you may not think, oh, it's, it's as easy to to own an EV as, as maybe you had thought. So I think some of the more practical concerns are what's slowing these vehicles down in terms of sales. But we do know that that is the goal, the long-term goal, but we're bound to hit road bumps. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. There was this other indicator last month where Hertz announced they were gonna sell about a third of their global electric vehicle fleet and use some of the proceeds to buy gas-powered cars. What's the deal with that? Is that about demand or are there other factors like upkeep costs? Yeah, I mean, I think that was an interesting deal because I think when you think about short-term ownership or short-term rental for an EV, it's a bit challenging because you're asking people to have a completely different relationship with your vehicle. So if you're not going to have this car forever or it is brand new to you, you may not know where to charge it. You may not be set up to do charging all the time where you live because it's like if this is a temporary thing, you're not going to necessarily invest the money. So I think that that could be some of the issues too. And I know they complain a lot about repair costs, particularly to batteries. And I think a part of it, again, is going to a new technology. Not everyone is feeling comfortable perhaps fixing batteries. And maybe you know we're hearing that the vehicles are just being scrapped instead, which feels very wasteful. But it's like you're also hearing that batteries are causing fires. And I could see if you are a repair shop, you know, maybe you just don't want to take that risk. Mm -hmm. Meantime, the Biden administration announced they're going to invest $325 million more in programs that would advance EV technology, they'd repair some chargers, and they would cut battery costs overall. How far will that go toward making EVs more affordable and more accessible? There needs to be a lot of investment in this, and it's a lot of investment in different areas. So it's not even about batteries becoming more efficient and spending all of that money to get that going. You know, it is also about infrastructure. It is about better charging. It is about fixing current infrastructure. So as we move towards this, it's definitely not simple, easy, straightforward. There needs to be automakers, the government, everyone working in concert to get this, you know, the, the, you know, this whole thing moving along because it's not just one party and asking people to commit to buying a new vehicle that is an EV when not everything is necessarily functioning at 100% is going to be a challenge. And that's that's always what we're hearing from consumers. They're worried about range. They're worried about their battery. They're worried about infrastructure and charging. And that freedom just to go wherever you want to go may be limited. And I think that's what scares people, even if it's not something that they even do once a year. It's the, the idea, and I think that's very American of us, the <laughs> idea that you just cannot go somewhere uh, is preventing you from buying this vehicle. And it's, it happens all the time. Jessica Caldwell is head of insights for Edmunds.com. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. In Greek and Roman mythology, the Furies are three goddesses who punish the wicked, delivering vengeance to an unfair, unlawful world. 
William Brangham talks with a former NewsHour reporter and the author of a new book that paints a portrait of three modern-day women who similarly used violence when they had no other option. In Alabama, Brittany Smith shot a man who she said had just raped and nearly killed her and was choking her brother. In India, Angori Dahadia, a lower caste woman unfairly evicted from her home, rises to become the leader of a gang of women who punish those who hurt other poor women. And in Syria, teenage Chichek Mustafa Zibo joins an all-female militia that's fighting a violent campaign against the Islamic State group, which is terrorizing their country. How this violence changes each of these women and has lasting implications on them and their broader communities is the subject of a new book called The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice. And it is written by journalist Elizabeth Flock. Liz, so good to have you back on the NewsHour. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about these women and why their stories jumped out at you? Yeah, so I started this project as a journalist because I found myself so interested in stories of female vigilantes, antiheroes. They populate so many of our movies and songs and books and mythology. And I really wanted to understand why that was. And I think, I think we're obsessed with these stories because we wish in a way that we could be them. Um, one in three women has faced domestic or sexual violence in this country and in the world. And so I think when we see these depictions on screen, um, in pop culture, we wish that we could be those women fighting back. And so as a journalist, my next question was, are there real life versions of these women who have fought back? So I spent um, five years going around the world looking for women who had fought back um, against violence with violence of their own. And I wanted to understand whether that violence helped or harmed them and their communities and to understand why they had to fight back um, and what had happened that they hadn't been protected. I mean, that last point seems to be the central thrust of the whole book, that while these women's circumstances are all quite different, they each felt no one else is looking out for me in this given circumstance, and right. so they had to take the most drastic step. Right. In all of those instances, what I found is that institutions had failed them in some way, whether it was the police or the court system or the state itself. They hadn't protected women, hadn't responded to their complaints of domestic or sexual violence. Um, and so the women ultimately um, took up arms themselves to defend themselves and their communities um, and felt that they had no other option. I mean, it really is a condemnation of our collective society. Yeah, I mean, I think this book is not an argument in favor of violence to say, hey, this is the solution, but it is asking the question, what would you do if you were in a scenario where uh, you were facing domestic or sexual violence and no one was responding to your complaints or protecting you, you would have to, you know, would you take up arms yourself? Um, and so I think that was a question I had as a journalist throughout this project and trying to understand. Brittany Smith shot a man who she said raped her. Um, what should she have done instead? Angori Dahadia was wielding bamboo canes against domestic abusers, but that was after um, police had failed to respond to complaints of domestic violence for years. And Chichek was a fighter in an all-female militia fighting ISIS after the total failure of the Syrian state. Um, and so she felt like there was no other option as well. One of the things that's so striking about your book is you just, you refuse to romanticize these women. I mean, you portray them in some ways all taking heroic and at times inspiring actions, 
But you also show the, the flip side of that, that their violence has implications, that, that the corruption can come with power, and that that seems to be a real central focus of this, that it's not a, a rosy image of all of this. Yeah, I think even as a journalist, when I started out, I did have a little bit of rose-colored glasses on about these women. I thought, wow, this gang of women in India is fighting domestic abusers. How cool, how interesting. And even the YPJ in Syria, the all-female militia that Chichek fights for, the Western media has, you know, glamorized them quite a bit and said, look at these amazing women wielding Kalashnikovs against And ISIS. sexualized them, too. And sexualized them and exoticized them. And, you know, the, the longer I worked on this, the more complicated I found all of these women. Brittany struggled with drug addiction. Angori was really invested in her own power. Um, Chichek, you know, really uh, was obsessed with the ideology of the Kurdish leaders. And I think that was really important to show. And that's why you work on a book project this length, because you're trying to push back past the two-dimensional depictions of these kinds of women. And so this is the story of women doing extraordinary things, but it's also the story of the complications of that. And I think, I hope that the rest, the reader would wrestle with that throughout. Like, is this okay? Is this not okay? Where did they cross the line with their violence? What would I do? And um, just how complicated all of that is. You were saying before that as you've been going out on your book tour, you've been hearing from other women who have had kindred kinds of experiences. Can you explain what you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, so many women have come up to me, um, young women, older women, and said, you know, I faced some kind of sexual or domestic abuse or even just something as low level as sexual harassment um, or something really violent and felt like they didn't know what to do, that they looked back and wished that they had fought back, that they understood what this book was about, that they felt some kind of rage or violence. A lot of people have said just the word relatable. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think, unfortunately, it is still such a silent ep epidemic, domestic and sexual violence. We know it's all around us, but we often don't hear about it. And I think there's a reason that these stories really resonate with everyone. Um, in the epilogue of your book, you say that as you were saying, the women's actions both helped and hurt them. No one gets a happy ending in this book, as you report. But you also say that's partly because they live in a, quote, damaging cultures of honor. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so all of the women were punished for fighting back, right? And so it's kind of a double thing that's happening to them, which is that first they're not protected, and then they fight back and then they're punished for it. So Brittany was arrested um, and charged with murder. Angori was also arrested and sometimes ostracized in her community. Um, and Chichek is suffering with PTSD from fighting in war, which so often happens. Grievous injuries. And grievous injuries. Her whole stomach is split open, her arms and legs. She was hit by drone strikes. Um, the stories are incredible. Um, but. You know, I think part of the reason is that I found all three of these women, and I didn't choose these locations. They, these locations really chose me because of the stories that I found. Um, and I realized that all of them, whether it was rural Alabama or northern India or northeast Syria, um, all of them had these cultures of honor where um, honor was such an important concept for the men that lived there and defending their honor. And I think that is what led to a lot of the domestic and sexual violence that took place. Um, and as a result, these women were punished for fighting back and speaking up. The book is The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice. Elizabeth Flock, so great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, William.
Gwinnett Smith is the longtime owner of Starlet Dance Studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Despite facing a range of challenges, she says she keeps the studio alive for the generations of dancers who keep coming back. Tonight, Gwinnett Smith shares her brief but spectacular take on the art of dance. These are students that I've had over the years. These are my children. I never had any, so these are my children. I got lots of kids. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. Wow, wow. Old age is, is quite a trip, I'll tell you. It's just my body's saying, time to rest, <laughs> you know. Right now I teach tap. I teach the advanced ballet. Now, ballet is my favorite. I start with the three-year-olds, and my oldest student at this point in time is 82. And a lot of them, when they were growing up, they dreamed of doing dancing. And now that they're older and retired, they want to try it. And for my teachers that teach for me, they started with me when they were little kids, and now they're teaching. And they wouldn't have that if I didn't keep this place going. It's just part of my life. It's just like, it, this is part of my body. To me, dance is an art. When you're dancing, when, when you're doing jazz, you know, you're just like, yeah! You know, it's from your heart. And when it's in ballet, it's like, I love you, audience, I love you. These shoes are all shoes from students of mine who have moved out of Albuquerque. Katie danced here. <laughs> I was a very shy, very timid person, and so Mom decided to put me in dancing because she took tap dancing when she was young. So that's how I got started at the age of six. The dancing really helped, it really brought me out. So by the time I was in high school, I was on the dance team. It was fun dancing in front of an audience. I wasn't afraid at all. And from there, I just started teaching here at Starlet. That's when I was in college. I've been the owner for about 40 years. In this North Valley, this has been the only dance studio forever. I just got all my joy out of the dance studio. I want everybody to have a chance to experience dance. It, it, it's not just saying, gee, look how high I can get my leg. It's your heart and your soul. This studio, I'm working on third and fourth generation of students. So it's like a family. Everybody knows everybody. We're all helping each other. It's just very intertwined. My hopes is that Starlet Dance Studio will remain here and that my students who have grown up and are now teaching for me will have a venue and a place to go. And I hope they continue the heart, the heart part of it. My name is Wynette Smith, and this is my brief but spectacular take on the art form of dance. It's from the heart. <laughs> Such an inspiration. You can watch more brief but spectacular videos online at pbs.org newshour brief. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for spending part of your evening with us.